Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. In this introductory part of my program, I want to touch upon two subjects which I don't discuss in detail because I just became aware of them and I think it's important for the listeners to know. The first subject is that the European Union has spent half a billion dollars in the last seven years to support a Palestinian Authority plan to control Area C of the West Bank. Area C is that part which is supposed to be entirely given to Israel. An annual sum of 20 million euros is earmarked for Palestinian legal battles against settlements and security barrier. In this, in this last decade, the United Kingdom, France, and Belgium has given 99% of their money in this area to support the Palestinian Authority. This territory, which covers some 60% of the West Bank, must be part of Israel's future borders, while the Palestinian Authority international community, including the European Union, believe that it is designated for inclusion in the final borders of a Palestinian state. So you can see there's a problem here, and the European Union effectively is funding the Palestinians in acts which are essentially against Israel. The Oslo Accords back in 1993 gave the Israeli army full control of land registration in Area C, and that is that part of the area which is supposed to go to Israel, and the European Union is funding efforts to undermine Israel. It's a weapon and a campaign against Israel, supported by the European Union, and I want that to be known to the uh, listeners. The other item which is under the radar is the fact that the Israeli president may visit Turkey for the first time since 2007. That is a major change in what's happening here in the Middle East, and I'll follow up with more details on another program. Again, thanks for listening. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show.
You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say something that you don't read or hear much about, but it's a very serious problem here in Israel, and it's becoming worse. I'm talking about the disorder and the lack of law in the Arab sector of our population. The disobedience within the Israeli Arab sector, which has turned into a major problem in the last year, involves violent civil civilian protests and widespread criminal activities. It's a serious problem. Its background involves some legitimate grievances against systematic discrimination and injustices by the Israeli authorities over the years. Now, this is propounded by activities by Arab crime families, the massive accumulation of illegal weapons, and the spreading of random violent crimes within those areas where Jews and Arabs live together, like the city of Lud. As well, Palestinian national sentiments are undoubtedly involved to a certain extent. A growing number of murders and accidental killings of Israeli Arabs by Israeli Arabs, which resulted in 126 such deaths in 2021, there is violence inside Israel and the Arab community, especially in mixed cities such as Lud, Ramla, Jaffa, Haifa, and Acre. During Operation Guardian of the Walls back in May, uh, there were a lot of riots, and particularly in Lud. Uh, involving primarily Arabs, but also some Jews. That was back in May. There are growing crime rates and harassment of Jews involving Bedouin in southern Israel throughout 2021. There are also violent demonstrations by Bedouin in the Negev, the southern part of Israel, against the background of the planting of trees by the Jewish National Funds on lands to which the Bedouin claim ownership. That just happened this month. There were, these are among the many violent events involving Israeli Arabs that have occurred in the past year. No doubt violent lawlessness is a major problem which must be addressed by means of much more extensive activity by the security forces. There is need to be increased investment by the government and increasing the construction of infrastructures and provision of services to the Arab community. They represent roughly 20% of the population. There should also be more serious efforts to solve the festering problem of unrecognized Bedouin settlements in the negative. The be- in the negative. The Bedouin are slowly but surely taking over the Negev. The current government seems to be in a much better position to solve some of the problems involved, much more than its predecessors, especially because of the participation of an Arab party called Ra'am in the current coalition. This has resulted in a quantity of funds earmarked for the Arab sector to grow significantly, 
and a better balance in using more massive forces to deal with violence and crime and increased sensitivity to the feelings of frustration within the Arab community. Among the obstacles that the government faces are the attitude of some in the opposition that too much emphasis is being placed on trying to understand the background of the violence. Their accusations that the Bedouin are threatening to take over the Negev uh, is very serious. The territory claimed by the Bedouin is about 5% of the Negev, but it's a part of the country that's very important to the development of the Jewish community. Uh, there's, there's also an interesting, uh, interesting situation. They're claiming that sons of Palestinian women from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip married to Israeli Bedouin who were not raised as Israelis constitute a majority of the rioters. What happens is that these Bedouin, they don't actually recognize boundaries. So you have uh, the uh, a lot of Bedouin here marrying women from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and then they move, they move into their families within Israel. So um, it's just, so far, the statistics seem to be that a lot of the rioters come from this community. The um, the the fact that that Ram and the Joint Arab List, which is another Arab party, are contending with each other rather than collaborating, is an obstacle to the success of integrating the Arabs into the Israeli uh, population. So we have a problem of integration of the Arabs. It's interesting, by the way. There are certain universities, certain departments of universities that, uh, for example, particularly Haifa University, which are mainly have Arab students. Uh, Arabs, uh, interestingly enough, Arabs, many Arabs become doctors by going to uh, medical schools outside of Israel. But a tremendous number of Arabs choose the profession of pharmacy. And particularly here in Jerusalem, where I live, it's very common to, to go into a drugstore, into a pharmacy, and the people behind the counter are uh, Arabs who have graduated from uh, local universities in the field of pharmacy. So the integration of the Arab community, and I use the word integration in a broad sense, because I don't know how well they can be integrated. I really don't. That's a problem unto itself. But uh, let's put it this way. The Arab uh, community in Israel has grown tremendously as part percentage of the population since the state came into being, because Arabs in Israel uh, do very well compared to Arabs in the Arab countries around us. So we have a problem of a growing Arab community. Uh, it's a large minority, and there's a lot of violence in that community, and something has to be done about it. The reason I bring it up is not because I have solutions, but I think the problem should be known uh, here, and it's, it's a serious problem, and it's getting worse. So that's why I brought it up.
By the way, along these lines, I want to point out something else. Um, the In a rare move uh, this week, the Ministerial Committee on Legislation in the Knesset voted Sunday to advance a bill that was sponsored by the opposition, uh, which is rather unusual. And what it was is a citizenship bill. Now, what would this bill do if passed into law? It would tighten immigration controls and make it harder for Palestinians who marry Arab Israelis to receive citizenship. The bill was backed by right-wing parties, and uh, the it was opposed by it was opposed by uh, by Ram the uh, the United Arab List, and it's it, it's seen so far as a first step toward the formation of a right-wing government if this government falls. The, uh, the government uh, uh, would have to regularly report to the Knesset how many new approvals there are for family reunifications and humanitarian exceptions. There would also be a quota set based on what was approved over the last two years so the government would not be extorted by the Arab parties. So it's it's interesting. Uh, the, uh, the the two bills were pushed through at the same time. Uh, one would make it, as I said, make it more difficult for Palestinians to marry Arab Israelis to receive citizenship, and another bill on a totally different subject uh, was passed at the same time. The uh, there's a big problem of the pensions for Israeli soldiers. It's altogether a different subject. Uh, they voted to advance a plan to invest 500 million shekels in pensions for retirees of the army. The uh, It's interesting because you can retire early in the army. You can retire at the age of 42, which uh, one of my, my son was one of those persons um, who, who retired. Uh, the, ra- the raise was controversial because regular soldiers in compulsory service make around 900 shekels a month uh, for a non-combat soldier, and a combat soldier gets 1,600 shekels a month. So, uh, and this bill was pushed through to give bigger pensions for officers. So it's a little bit controversial. So. Uh, the, these bills in the Knesset were the interesting news in the Knesset this week. So I tried to give the listeners an idea about the Arab population in Israel and and, and uh, a little bit about the pensions for soldiers. Uh, I'll be back after the break, and we'll go on to different subjects. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. 
But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For a lighten up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro. At the end of the previous uh, segment of the program, I said something about the... uh, salaries of the men serving in men and women serving in the Israel Defense Forces. I came across a small article. It was way back on, I think, page eight of the uh, Jerusalem Post. And uh, it had some interesting numbers that I want to share with the uh, listeners. Uh, Keep in mind that the average salary in Israel in the year 2020 was approximately 11,580 Israeli shekels. So let's round it off and call it 12,000. That's the average salary in Israel. Now let's look at the military. The chief of staff, General Aviv Kochavi, earned a gross salary of 99,000 per month in 2020. That's according to a new report filed by the finance ministry, which details the salaries, pensions, and other earnings uh, data among Israel's security forces. So again, the average salary in Israel is, let's say, 12000 and the head of the army is making roughly 100000 On the average, uh, Israeli soldiers earn between 9200 and 2400, I'm sorry, and 24,000, depending on the rank. Officers made between 10,000 and 70,000. This latter amount, 70,000 going to generals and the police superintendents uh, make about 60,000. So generals in the army make 70,000, uh, police superintendents make 60000 and the average salary in Israel is 12000 And the high-ranking uh, prison service staff make close to 60000 So the, 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 this report came out. I think nobody paid much attention to it, <clears throat> but it also outlines the pensions granted to various ranks within the defense infrastructure. And that's also interesting. The average allowance granted to retired officers in the army, the police, and the prison service is 20,000 shekels a month. And that puts them among the highest pension income recipients in the country. So they're getting 20,000 a month. Again, the average salary in the country is roughly 12,000. There's no doubt that the main resource of the system is human capital. Uh, This uh, statement was made by 
the director of salary and employment agreements in the government, and he said that the data presented in the report indicate that wages in the defense system are high relative to the average wage in the economy, that wage and pension expenditures are a major part of the uh, expenditures, and that there are very high wage gaps between the young who serve and the veterans. And he went on to say, we recognize the need to retain good people, but at the same time, we disagree on a way to achieve this, unquote. So when his report came out, giving all the uh, publicly saying what all the salaries were, the uh, IDF, the Israeli army, issued the following statement in response to the report. The statement said, the strength of the IDF lies in the quality of its personnel. The nature of service in the IDF is unique and not comparable to the business and public economy. In order to keep the best and the most suitable soldiers and officers in the rank, who work day and night for the security of the state of Israel, the IDF is required to give adequate and fair payment to those who serve and to encourage them to stay after the first mandatory years, unquote. Now, that makes sense. The report went on to say that contrary to what is reported in, uh, and felt elsewhere, There's no difference between the salaries in the IDF of women and men with the same characteristics, since the salaries are determined solely according to the way they serve, not their uh, sex. Uh, This final point, by the way, was made in response to an assertion in the report that there was a large wage gap between men and women serving in the IDF with men earning more than their female counterparts. And it's also true, it turns out, in the prison service and the police that men are making more than women. I quite honestly don't know how that comes about. There should be no difference. But anyhow, what I tried to present the listeners with in the last few minutes was an idea of the salaries made in the military and in the uh, police and in the prison service. Again, the one that really stands out is the fact that the the uh, chief of staff of the army earns close to 100,000 shekel a month when uh, the average salary in Israel is uh, like 12,000 shekel a month. But these guys have tremendous responsibility and I re- and they, 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 their lives are very difficult. They spend a lot of time away from home. So it's it's difficult to know uh, what the salaries should be and how the salaries of officers should, should compare to enlisted men and women. Uh, I haven't really thought much about it, but I came across this article and I wanted to share it with the listeners so you have a feeling of how our, our defense officials are being paid. That's just a subject that's uh, under the radar, but I wanted to share it with the listeners. Because I was raised in the United States, and uh, I didn't come to live in Israel until I was in my 30s, 
And because the United States is the big ally of Israel, I keep an eye on what's happening in the United States because I want it to continue to be a healthy society. But over the last couple of years, it seems to be falling apart. And I want to make a comment about that. Uh, in a, a memo that was leaked uh, in, uh, the, in New York, the uh, district attorney uh, has directed his office to stop seeking prison sentences for criminals who prey on those unfortunate enough to be walking in the streets of Manhattan. The, uh, he's directed, uh, instructed the assistant district attorneys to downgrade felony charges in cases ranging from armed robbery to drug dealing. If a foreign nation wanted to destabilize American society by creating such a scenario, scenario, I think it would be considered an act of war. According to press reports, the, uh, the district attorney has instructed his, uh, office, his office that they're not to seek a prison or jail sentence except for homicides and a handful of other cases, including domestic violence, felonies, and some sex crimes, and, uh, and uh, public corruption. In other words, you can walk into a store today, I think, and steal up to a certain amount. You, won't, you don't have to worry about it. You won't be arrested. This memo goes on to offer exceptions, even to these exceptions. The, uh, the, the uh, district attorney, in effect, has redefined evil. In his view, it is, criminal, it is the criminal who needs protecting, not the victim. He's done an irreparable harm to the very fabric of American society. The district attorney has essentially sanctified and blessed crime that can terrorize entire communities, especially the disadvantage that need protecting the most, and inflicted lifelong trauma on victims as well as destroyed the quality of life that American citizens in New York pay for their hard-earned taxes and have a right to demand from their government. Consider the following. The, attorney, the district attorney in New York believes that armed robbers who use guns or other deadly weapons to hold up stores will be prosecuted only for a misdemeanor, provided there was uh, seriously injured, there was no genuine risk of physical harm to anyone. This all doesn't make sense. You can pose the question, if someone holds you up at gunpoint, are you supposed to wait to see if he'll shoot you in order to decide if he will be violent or not? And th these kinds of wrong-side-up criminal justice policy are going to ruin the United States, really. And it, it's frightening, because not only was do I look, you know, my attitude toward the States, I was raised there, I have a soft heart soft part of my heart for the United States and it, it's Israel's biggest ally and most most and most important uh, ally. The uh, the political movements called progressive uh, want bail reform and they want to allow arrested felons to be released on the streets and uh, right away you have you have a storm for evil to take root, grow and poison the lives of every law abiding person and family. The, the Irish statesman Edmund Burke has often been warning 
50 years ago, he said the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I think that's happening now in, in the United States. We can't afford to turn a blind eye to this. Merg is our most important ally. We don't want to see it go down the hill. I'll be back after the break. Are you tired of political correctness and the fear that you might offend someone? I'm not afraid to offend you. Wow, look who's talking tough. One has to be tough to keep sane today. Hi, I'm Alan Skorsky. And I'm Bela Seabrow. And join us every Wednesday for The Definitive Wrap as we interview the most sought-after guests and expose progressive trends that masquerade as enlightenment but actually destroy our freedoms. We are the No Wolf Zone, so buckle up for this exciting show. Buckling up, but I'm driving. <laughs> sure, you can drive, but I'm the navigator. Tune in for the No Nonsense, the definitive rap show, every Wednesday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about a subject that keeps coming up over and over again, and it's a distortion of the truth and reality. And that subject is that somehow Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria, which is also known as the West Bank, is somehow a hindrance to peace. The Back in 1948, at the time of the War of Independence, Jordan took over that area, and under Jordan control, Jews were not permitted to live in what's called the West Bank. Despite there being no Israeli presence in that area, and the fact that there are armistice agreements between Israel and its Arab neighbors, There were many threats issued toward Israel and outbreaks of violence before 1967. For example, the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, whose stated goal was the destruction of Israel, was established three years prior to Israel's entrance to that area. It was established in 1964, three years before the war. Moreover, between 1949 and 1967, more than 450 Israelis were killed in terrorist attacks. Clashes between Israel and its neighbors continued and reached a boiling point in 67 with the outbreak of the war. Now, during the war, Israel managed to capture that whole area from Jordan, along with the Gaza Strip and Sinai Peninsula from Egypt and the Golan Heights from Syria. But in 1968, Israel began construction of communities, which are also called settlements in the territories it captured. But despite the presence of these settlements, 
Israel still managed to enter in political negotiations and agreements in attempts to achieve peace. For instance, the presence of Israeli settlements in the Sinai Peninsula and uh, Prime Minister Begin's desire to build more settlements in the West Bank did, didn't prevent Israel and Egypt from reaching a peace deal. From the 1980s to the 1990s, there was a significant increase in the number of settlements. However, this did not preclude Israel from signing a peace treaty with Jordan. Perhaps more significantly, the significant increase in settlements didn't prevent the PLO from signing the Declaration of Principles with Israel in 1993 and the so-called Interim Agreement. These agreements, have, which have come to be known as the Oslo Accords, never banned settlement construction. Furthermore, the PLO kept negotiating with Israel during the 1990s while the settlement population continued to grow and they even entered into final status negotiations at Camp David back in 2000. The, uh, at Camp David, by the way, our former Prime Minister Ehud Barak offered to dismantle a large number of the settlements but the offer was rejected by Yasser Arafat, who was running the terrorist organization at that time. You have to look at the reality on the ground. The, uh, during the Oslo Accords, Israel and the PLO agreed to divide the West Bank into three different regions. One, two areas called A and B are under PLO civil administration, and Area C is administered by Israel. Area C is where all the Israeli settlements are located and is very sparsely populated, mostly vacant land. Area C also makes up around 60% of the land mass of that area. Currently, the build-up areas of Israeli settlements comprise less than 2% of the entire territory of Judea and Samaria. The, uh, and this has been confirmed by everybody, even the Arabs know this. Today, approximately 80% of Israeli settlements inside the West Bank are within close proximity to the Green Line, which is the border of the original Israel before the 1967 war. And a lot of these communities, which people call settlements, are really nothing more than suburbs of major cities like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The, in fact, the two-thirds of the settlement population live in just five settlement blocks, which are commonly referred to as consensus settlements. These are the large settlements that are nearly certain to become part of Israel, if and when final borders are finally determined. The settlement blocks that make up the consensus, are, these are names, names known to everybody. Maladumim, Gush Etzion, Beitar Elit, Kivat Zev, Modin Elit, Ariel. Ariel is a huge city already. It's got more than 20,000 residents. The... Uh, most of them, except for Ariel, are within a short distance of the Green Line. The consensus settlements and other settlements close to the Green Line could easily be incorporated into Israel 
which would allow for the maximum number of settlers to remain while incorporating the least possible amount of territory. Furthermore, Israel's withdrawal from the Gaza Strip illustrates that settlements were never an obstacle to peace. In August 2005, Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, which involved forcibly removing 8,500 Israelis from 21 settlements located in that area. I remember I was involved in there were all kind of demonstrations, and the people stood in line. There was a line of people stretching from the Gaza Strip all the way to Jerusalem, protesting what the state of Israel did. So Israel unilaterally, unilaterally drew from the Gaza Strip, and we've got no peace. Gaza is an enclave. It's simply a terrorist center. So all, those who believed that removing the settlements would help in advancing peace I can see now that exactly the opposite has happened. In 2007, Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, which is dedicated to Israel's destruction, took control of the Gaza Strip, and, and a violent overthrow of the Palestinian Authority, in which thousands of people were killed. As a matter of fact, uh, originally the Gaza Strip and the uh, central part of, uh, of uh, Israel was uh, now called the West Bank, uh, was given over to the Palestine Liberation Organization. They still have a capital in Ramallah, which is uh, north of Jerusalem, but they were violently thrown out of the Gaza Strip by another organization called Hamas. So... There's absolutely no reason whatsoever to say that Israeli settlements are preventing peace. That, that really, all these agreements came together, particularly the Oslo Accords, uh, never really banned settlement, but the, the, um, the Palestinian side has not kept its part of the bargain. And that's why there is no peace. It's not Israel's fault. And as a matter of fact, uh, back on uh, Jerusalem Day this year, uh, the they fired uh, rockets from the Gaza Strip into Jerusalem itself. So all, all these words that saying that uh, Israeli settlements are preventing peace, the facts on the ground show that this is not true. And I really don't like to bring this subject up again, but the very fact that the, the, the subject is brought up over and over again by the Palestinians, and it's simply a lie. And it's a lie that we've begun to live with. The, the truth of the matter is there'll be no peace with the Palestinians unless and until they begin educating their own kids toward living in peace with Israel. It's very funny. You read all kind of reports uh, about things happening in the Arab society, in the Palestinian society, and uh, Mohammed Abbas goes around the world when he speaks in languages, other Arabic, he keeps talking about the desire for peace. But if you really want to know what the, the desire of the Palestinians is, all you have to do is check your education system. From the age, from pre-kindergarten to the entire education system, 
they are taught that Israel has no right to exist. So what happens is, if you starting in 1993, that means any kids who even started school in the, under their system in 1993, they're now adults. And they were raised for many years with the brainwashing that Israel has no right to exist. That is the problem here, not settlements. Settlements have nothing to do with peace. And the problem is, and not enough is said about it, is the education system in the under the Palestinian Authority. That is the obstacle to peace. And that should be brought out and more people should know about. Just take a look at the phone, at the school books used in the authority and you realize why there'll be no peace in our time. That's nothing whatsoever to do with the settlements. I hate, I hate even to speak about this again, but every now and then people have to be reminded of what the reality is on the ground here. Their education prevents peace, not our settlements. Thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.